Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Welcome again. Uh, welcome to Advent. We're so glad that y'all are here with us. Sorry, I almost kept pulling my microphone off as I was sitting in my chair. Um, so hopefully that's, is that a decent volume right now? Okay, good. Um, we have a lot of new faces here. And so to orient you guys, I'd love uh, to just let y'all know we're working through uh, a sermon series on our mission, vision, and values of, of who we are as a church plant. Um, we're uh, now nine weeks into worshiping in this facility, and, uh, and God has been so gracious uh, to give it to us. And so we've been going through uh, what, what our name means and why we named ourselves Advent. And then uh, last week we talked about the embrace aspect of our vision statement, uh, which, you know, embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus. And so this week we're going to focus on embody. Um, and so rather than doing a, a sort of an exegetical um, uh, explanation of the 1 Corinthians 12 passage, we're actually going to be looking at it um, in, 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 a, in a much bigger way as this passage relates also to the New Testament reading that came, or the gospel reading that came earlier, and the Old Testament reading as well. And so, um, normally we stand, but that's typically because we've been doing the gospel readings. And so, I, I uh, almost stood you guys, but if y'all would, uh, uh, just follow along in your bulletins, or if you have a Bible, uh, you can follow along there. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 to 13, and then verse 31 which then is actually the beginning of chapter 13, uh, all the way through verse 7. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And I will show you a still more excellent way, Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable and resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things. It endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Our Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you that you speak to us, that you do give us uh, your word. And, um, and Father, I thank you that you have called us to embody um, uh, the, the very presence of Jesus. And Lord, may as we think about that task, may we um, have ears to hear. Um, may you give us new eyes, new hearts, and, uh, and change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, a question I have for us this evening is how much does it matter 
to gather together as a church, right? Is it actually important to be physically together, right? And given that we've um, kind of gone through at least a year, maybe more, depending on what your uh, previous church was or what your current church was, um, did you feel anything different when church went online, I I would actually say one of the problems of American Christianity was how little seemed to be lost when everything shifted online. Um, Miles Wernz, who's a theologian at Abilene Christian, was recently on a podcast that my wife was listening to, um, and he was kind of pondering this very issue. And he said, why is it that so many churches and our church practices were able to put online with no real problems? The answer is that very little of what we do at church or what, we, uh, what is required um, in our discipleship processes at church was required to be done physically in person. It required an embodiment, so to speak. Right? All of, almost all of it could be put on Facebook Live or almost all of it could be put on Zoom. And, and I'm not trying to, to say that, that like, it was a negative thing for us to have gone online. It was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, what I am trying to say is that it pointed out a particular problem that we have in the American church. That discipleship, that preaching of the word, all of these things were seen as just as good once they went online. Right? The church didn't change that much for most American Christians during the height of the pandemic is the problem. I, um, in preparing for the sermon, I was, uh, I was looking for different articles, and uh, I decided to look up a term that I thought I was super creative and that I'd coined, and it was uh, evangelical Gnosticism. I thought I was like an original, and it turns out I'm not at all original. Uh, there were like 100 articles already written on the subject. Um, Basically, it was this. I wanted, uh, I wanted to understand what I thought and saw was a growing trend amongst evangelicals that looked a lot like first and second century Christian Gnosticism. Um, now, Gnosticism is a really challenging thing to describe, but in this very, very basic way, um, the Christian Gnostics saw Jesus and his ministry through the lens of Plato and Greek philosophy. That is to say, the physical world and particularly the physical body, is bad, right? The inner world, the thought world, the spiritual world, the affections, those are good, right? And so the way this related for Christian Gnostics is they believe Jesus was divine and that he took on human form, but it was only to kind of free us from our physical body prisons and bring us out into who we were created to actually be, which was sort of a divine being, spiritual being, divine in nature. Now, modern American uh, Protestantism has a form of this type of Gnosticism, where the only thing that matters is the spirit and not the body. Right? The only thing that matters is your mind or your affections, but not anything else. And there's a couple different ways and examples, maybe you've seen this. You know, first might be uh, in how we treat salvation, you know, we'll ask the question a lot of times in American evangelical cir- uh, circles, you know, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? Right? And when we say things like that, we don't mean of the heart the way that the scriptures mean, which is to say, you know, a kind of a shorthand for all of who you are, right? your mind, soul, body, and strength. 
Right? When the, the Bible talks about the heart, that's what it's talking about. What we mean is, do you have positive feelings for Jesus? Right? Do you generally believe that he is your Savior, and do you feel positively about him? And that's where we stop. Right? It's little wonder that Protestant repentance looks much the same way. Right? And that's another example where we've seen um, kind of this Gnosticism. Right? We, we, we think to ourselves, I, I acknowledge that what I've done is wrong uh, in thought and in deed, and I feel really bad about it. And that's typically where we stop with repentance. Right? If someone does that, we often think, well, that's good enough. Even we've seen numerous examples where a pastor has come on uh, contrite for the sins that they've committed, and they've acknowledged them, and they feel bad about them, and then within the next week, they're back in the pulpit, right? Because repentance doesn't require anything to do about it in American evangelical Gnosticism. But we know that what the Bible teaches about repentance is far more than that, right? It demands something to be done, it's not merely that our inner life needs repentance, although that certainly does as well, but it's our physical life. True repentance acknowledges sin, feels contrition, and turns from it, does something about it, and follows Jesus. When we repent, we do something about it. And a, a third example I was thinking of when I was thinking about this is um, we're often Gnostics in the way that we think about the church. Right? The church is the people of God. It's not the place, and we, we do pretty good on that front, but we recognize there's this spiritual unity that we have with one another, and so it doesn't really matter if I'm a part of a local church. I'm a part of the global church, right? Um, and, and so I, I work it out in my spiritual connection with one another. Um, and actually, the Babylon Bee wrote a, a hilarious article talking about how a, a local man didn't need to join the particular uh, gym because he was a member of the universal gym, um, right? And often that's the exact way that we think about the local church, right? We don't need to be a part of the local church. I'm a part of the universal, the global church. In essence, why does it matter for us to be physically together? What does, the, what does this have to do with anything? Well, this afternoon I want to talk about that. What does it mean to embody Jesus? And I want to talk about it in three ways the embodied presence of Christ, an embodied unity, and finally an embodied ethic. Let's first look at the embodied presence. Um, there's many themes that you can track throughout the entire story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but one of the easiest ones to track is the story of God's presence with us in the world, right? When God creates us in the garden, um, he is present with Adam and Eve. He walks with them in the cool of the day, as it says, which is just a poetic way of saying he's with them. But things change. Adam and Eve sin, and they're exiled from his very presence. And, uh, and God shows up in sundry or various ways throughout the Old Testament until He's present with them in the tabernacle, right? This sort of moving temple that goes with them as they uh, leave Egypt and go into the promised land. And then a physical and permanent structure is built, the temple, until it's destroyed and God's people in sort of an unfaithfulness again are exiled and they're punished until God's um, grace is bestowed upon them in a particularly amazing way, right, where where God, um, God redeems his people by taking on flesh 
or moving into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says in his, in his translation of the Bible called The Message. God dwells with us in Jesus. Now, Jesus lives faithfully. He lives faithfully as Adam and Eve did not do. Um, he dies. He's resurrected. He's ascended the throne. And so, what is, where is God's presence now? What is God's presence like now? Well, the scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit is present within all of Jesus' disciples, right? You've heard that said before. Your body is a temple. And now that doesn't mean don't, don't get a tattoo. I mean, if you want, maybe get a tattoo, but talk to your parents about it. Um, that's, my point is that's not a, a scripture proof for tattooing. What that is, is it's, it's God's reminder to us that the very presence of Jesus is within us, right? That thou, he is so close to you and to me, we can meet him in our own very bodies because the Holy Spirit is with us. But not only that, we see here in our passage that there's this union between Jesus' presence in the world and the church. If we look back at verses 12 and 13, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul is drawing a connection between the church and Jesus, right? The Christ. He's saying that the body of the Christ is now present through this spirit-filled church. There's this spiritual union between Jesus and the church. He identifies his body, Jesus, with the church. So therefore, we are the church. As the church, are Christ's body. We are Christ embodied, so to speak. And it's really easy to go way too far with this. Right, where we can almost begin to say that as God's people, there's this sort of one-to-one that we are with Christ. Um, we're like, we're the very hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Jesus is far greater than we, than we can even in our union with one another and by the Holy Spirit be. That's not who, what Paul is saying here. To say that we're the very hands and feet of our risen Savior is to give us far more power and emphasis in God's work of redemption. But rather, Paul is saying that Jesus is this anointed one. Jesus, as having been and made the king, he is who Adam and Eve were always intended to be. He's who we as human beings were always intended to be. And so, as we are united to him, we become that physical presence of being a human like Christ. So when you hear people say, you should be more Christ-like, that's not to say you should be more divine. That's actually saying you should be more human, the way we were intended to be, because he's the perfect human. And we do that as we are united together, and that's our second point. One of the key ways that we embody Jesus is with our union, uh, in our union with one another. And Paul, Paul is using this body metaphor to describe a, a Christian's unity with one another very carefully. Right? He's not saying that any one part of the body is the same or equal to Jesus. Um, he's not saying that like the arm is equal to Christ. No, he's saying that all parts working together are Christ. And our translation robs us a little bit of, of some of the emphasis of the metaphor. 
by translating it members of the body, it almost sounds like we have this like voluntary participation uh, where we're just like joining a club or a team, like a wine club or something like that. Um, no, a better translation would actually be like organs of the body, right? Where each organ is essentially dead without its presence with the other organs, right? They don't function unless they are a part of the whole. David Cassidy, who is a pastor now at Spanish River Presbyterian Church in Florida, uh, used to come and guest teach when I was in seminary in Austin, where he was back then. Um, and one of the classes he told the story of when he was uh, first working with the church in England, and, uh, and, and he was working on the greeting team. And so he's you know, sitting there telling, saying hey to different people, and all of a sudden a guy comes in. I don't know his name. We'll call him Charles III, because that seems appropriate right now. Um, he says, hey, you know, how are you? My name's Charles. Um, he goes, and I'm an I. That's how he introduces himself. And David, being very quick, says, well, welcome to the rest of the body. Um, the point that David was making, and I think this really witty and clever response, is that an I is only an I when it's connected to the rest of the body. An I does not work unless it's connected to everything else that is within us. It's kind of gross or scary looking all on its own, right? Thus, we are only the body of Christ as we are the body of Christ together. Individually, we don't embody him in the same way. Even as an individual church of a collective group, we are not the sum total of who Jesus is in the world. But as a united church across nations, across, across time, then we're we are in embodied presence of Christ in the world. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why Paul is so adamant in the rest of this chapter um, that the spiritual gifts that are given to the church are meant to be lived out together. It's in their contribution to the church as a whole that we begin, or, or the Corinthian church is, is intended to grow in Christ, and therefore we are as well. Right? Gifts of tongues, prophecy, evangelism, teaching, on their own, they make for a church this misshapen, right? Kind of like an eyeball rolling around on its own or, or, or like a, a, a bodybuilder who skipped leg day. You know, it looks gross. It looks misshapen. A church where the prophetic voice is all that's heard lacks other elements of what it means to be the body of Christ. A church that evangelizes but doesn't teach is lopsided, kind of walks along with a limp. Thus, any gifts and abilities that we bring to the church, they're not for us as individuals. They are for Christ to use for his work of redemption in the world. Whatever God has given to us are for his good and for his work. And this is one of the reasons why at Advent we regularly want to remind ourselves that we are united to other Christians to other denominations, and to other generations. No one group of Christians can claim to be the whole Christ. We are not the essence of all that he has done, nor do we have a corner on the truth. But I would also argue that in the context of, of what we read and, and what we're talking about here, that it's important to acknowledge maybe just how harmful 
it has been to the body of Christ and our witness in the world when, it's, when we're ripped apart from one another. Um, when we split from a local church or when a denomination rips apart, it's painful. Right? It leaves deep wounds and it leaves deep scars and it takes time to heal. It's painful for Christians and it's also harmful for our embodied presence in the world, for our witness. Right? Non-Christians look at us and they wonder, does it even matter? Right? How many denominations of Presbyterian are there? You know, um, it, it, Too many. How good is the good news if they keep splintering and they keep infighting? It's harmful for our presence. But I make no qualms about it. Being united is, is challenging. N.T. Wright said it's easy to have unity without holiness. And it's easy to have holiness without unity. And he's right. It is incredibly challenging to be united because we are sinners living in a sin-filled world. We've we've experienced and we have helped to participate in church splitting, church splintering, criticisms, gossiping. In our own strength, we are are like polarized magnets where we're trying to hold unity together, but we just can't quite get it there. But only in the Holy Spirit are we actually bound to one another. It's only possible to do so by His work and by what he calls the greatest ethic as he moves in his argument toward chapter 13, and that ethic is the ethic of love. Paul continues utilizing the, the, the body metaphor throughout the chapter. As I said, he talks about kind of the different aspects of, of gifts and roles within the church. He mentions that, that there's some gifts and roles that we, that we honor more than others, and um, that there's also uh, there's, there's this sense in which we don't treat uh, one more kindly than another. However, he says there is still a more excellent way, as he says in verse 31. Right, the gifts of the different organs of the body are good, but they're not as good as this chief, chief virtue or chief, chief ethic that is love. Now, Paul is saying that a unified body of Christ, the best way for us to live is to embody love. And we live in a culture where we kind of don't know what that word means anymore. It's been robbed of a lot of, its, uh, a lot of its meaning. But in much the same way that our culture uh, has all sorts of different types of love, so did Paul's. And Paul is using a word here that has not been utilized in the Greek language that often outside of the New Testament, and he's doing so purposefully. Right, the word agape has been used here in order to distinguish Christian love from the cultural assumptions about love that they were having at the time. Because love in the ancient Greek and Roman world was not that different from what, what it is now. In our culture, love is a feeling or love is sort of sexualized. And Paul is using this word that's typically a Greek verb. He's using it in noun form. Um, for one of the first times in the New Testament. He's saying that what makes biblical agape love different from the cultural understanding of love is this. Christian love is active. It is cross-shaped. It is sacrificial. It's patient. It's kind. It's not prone to envy, so on and so forth. So biblical love is different from our world's understanding of love because it's an action. It's sacrificial. 
In fact, to love one's enemies necessitates that it's not a feeling. Because how often do we feel really positive about our, our enemies? But the Bible still says that it is something we are commanded to do. So it must be an action. It must be something that we are called to do. And within the flow of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians, that's what he's saying it means to be the body of Christ, to love, to love one another, and to love, uh, to love the world as well. In fact, that, that's what it means to be human, to have dominion over the fish and to image God in the world. It means that we are to love it, to love the world that God has given to us and to love him to take care of, to sacrifice for. Right? That's what it means to embody Christ in this world. Um, I used to get made fun of a lot when I was a pastor at Christ the King before this uh, that I would make a lot of references to Disney movies. So here comes one. Um, I, I actually really enjoyed the movie Frozen. Uh, we watched it. I, I have three girls, so I've watched it a, a number of times. But what I love about it is this amazingly biblical juxtaposition that they have with the definition of love. Right? Anna, who is one of the sisters, is obsessed with this idea that love is going to break the curse. Right, And in her mind, it's true love's kiss. In essence... It's these feelings, these romantic feelings of love that are ultimately going to break the curse. But that's not actually what it was. The true love aspect of the movie was when she sacrificed herself for her sister, for her own sister's, uh, uh, for her own sister's good. Right? It wasn't a feeling. It was an action. It was sacrificial. Right? We often live with the expectation that others will fulfill us and that maybe somehow our true purpose in life is to get all of those positive feelings and thinking. But like Anna, we're called to live a life of sacrificial love. And we do so, we do so as John tells us, we do so because Jesus has first loved us in that exact same way, right? So that's what we want to be as a church of Advent as we embody the grace of Jesus Christ to the world. So in light of that, let me go back to our very original question. What was lost when the church went online? Right, maybe maybe the, the answer is that not much of this was actually happening to begin with. Um, and so therefore, not much was uh, lost when it went online. But lost is our embodied ability to love sacrificially, to love one another. Right, we lost our desire even to remain united. And so may we as Advent lean upon Jesus and his spirit as we learn to embody his grace in this loving way. We pray to that end. Our God and Father, we do thank you that you have loved us first. That through Jesus Christ that we are now able to call you sons and daughters as you have allowed us to place our faith in you. As you have united yourself to us, may we be united to one another. Lord, I pray for, um, for those here who may not know Jesus. I pray, Lord, that they would come and, and find just how much he continues to pursue us. May, he, may they embrace the good news of Jesus, and may we all come to know um, that he has first loved us, and may we come in to embody that love in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.